This is Life and Books and Everything, hosted by Kevin DeYoung, Justin Taylor, and Colin Hansen. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. I am Kevin DeYoung with Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen. We are so glad that you have joined us as we record this here on Monday, May 11. I want to start with a question, and uh, I hope it's I hope it doesn't move in an unedifying direction or make light of uh, anyone's passing. But uh, at 92 years old, Jerry Stiller, comedian, ah. passed away this morning. Uh, most famous, probably, well, for our generation, not commending the show to you. You know, use your discretion, but Frank Costanza, George Costanza's father on Seinfeld, and perhaps most famously, his character invented Festivus (laughs) for the rest of us. (laughs) So in honor of Festivus, I thought we could begin with the airing of grievances. (laughs) I got a lot of problems with you people. I got a lot of problems. Serenity, no! (laughs) So I I thought, uh, nothing too serious, but I thought... Give me a little insight into the the idiosyncratic world that is Justin Taylor or Colin Hansen. What are some what are some little mini rants, some pet peeves that you have? And I, once I knew I was going to ask this question, this is a sanctification issue. I just I couldn't stop. I started just listing. I just had a long. You better start list. then, as you give us a chance to warm up. Uh, uh, okay. Well, I won't mention all of them, but here's a few that are on my list. One. Grow as a transitive verb. Can I get an amen, Justin? <laughs> uh, I know that you, that you can do this now, but I I grew up learning that unless you are you grow corn, grow is an intransitive verb. You cause something to grow. So all the people growing churches, growing their budget, uh, it just bothers me. The, the, here's the extent to which it bothered me when I was at. Uh, Urbana 1996, they had a, a song that somebody, you know, it was a nice song and I don't, it was just a homegrown song for the conference. And it was, the chorus was grow something new. And uh, in my life, oh Lord, grow something new. And I just couldn't sing it. I kept under my breath saying, cause something to grow in me instead of grow. <laughs> so I just didn't, I don't like grow as a transitive verb. Um, I I don't like when people think they can pick and choose willy-nilly their sports teams. Uh-huh. I remember 10 years ago in East Lansing, a guy working on our house doing something. I'm making small talk, and he mentions he's a Michigan fan. So, oh, well, you're in you – know, he gives some hard time about beating us in football, Michigan State. And I said, wait till basketball. And here's what he said. I'm not making this up. He said, well, in basketball, I kind of root for the Spartans. <laughs> well, and I've I've had people here who, uh, you know, they'll give me a hard time about Duke. And I'll say, well, who, you know, how's Duke football? Well, you know, in football, I'm a little bit of a Clemson fan. No, you can't. You can't do that. You know, at a basketball, I've just always been a Warriors fan. Until recently, I'm not so much. So that that's a you you can't do that. That breaks rules. Uh, you know what bothers me? 
my, my kids, when they went to the public school, and there's, uh, there's good and bad things about the public school, but the, the big banner, sort of their slogan was uh, raising global citizens. And there was definitely, I mean, there, there's a worldview behind that. At least it wasn't growing global I citizens. I know, that would have been horrible. But you're not a, a citizen. Y- y- there are no global citizens, Okay, until Mars is colonized, there are no, you're just, you live here. You are not a citizen of the world. There is no citizenship of the world. You have a citizenship to a particular country, people, place. Heaven? Uh, yeah. Does the World Series bother you? <laughs> yes, that bothers. Well, I mean, it is America. <laughs> we have Canada in there. Would it make Korea and Japan feel better? If they got to participate, yeah, in or, it or Cuba. <laughs> okay, here, here's my another I, classic Seinfeld moment. I know I have many more, but here, here's my last one, which is semi uh, legit. I think I have a a long time pet peeve with Christian colleges. Their their alumni magazines. For once, I want to see them highlight a mother, not a mother who is also uh, doing the New York Ballet or a mother who also is discovering the cure for cancer. I want a mom. Now, I don't expect that from a secular university, but I'd like to see a Christian college, not just to affirm moms, but to affirm their liberal arts education, that what we give you is not just valuable if you end up being a quote-unquote important person. It's valuable because it makes you a better mom. It makes you a better Christian. It makes you a better thinker. So I have a pet peeve when uh, you know 55% or more of their graduates are women. And for a Christian conservative school, probably most of them are spending their next two decades in large part being moms. And you would never guess it from their alumni content that any of their impressive graduates are mothers. There you go. I thought uh, you were going to say something about world changers. Oh, I will, yeah, I'll get on that too. World changing global citizens. I want to hear what Justin has to say, and then I want to I want to just save up for the feats of strength. <laughs> All <laughs> right, I want to airing of grievances, Justin. What do you got, Justin? All right, Kevin, you're the advantage here because you get to think about these for several days. Okay, well, we I could have to... given you that ahead of time. I'm sorry. No, your list was very impactful, so I appreciated it. No, don't impactful is another word. I was going to put that in my <laughs> he list. He stole mine. This is just going to be a list of editing grievances, actually. <laughs> the M-dash and the N-dash. Okay, go, Justin. <laughs> yeah. Have you figured those out yet? I know what they are. I just, on my computer, I refuse to use to them. <laughs> I love how this friendship works. Justin complains to Kevin about the dashes. Kevin refuses to change decade after decade. Meanwhile, I go into every blog post Kevin writes, and I make them right. I well, fix tell them. Tell me how to do it on my <laughs> blog post. <I've- laughs> to make Justin happy, I fix all of them <laughs> on the blog posts. Yeah, the airing of grievances is a fun editorial activity because there are so many of them. Uh, I don't really have any grievances. I just give thanks in all circumstances, and uh, <laughs> I'm not wired like Kevin, I guess. No, the Iowa Hawkeyes would be one. Um, oh, uh, all of us agree. No, what? What's so? What? Uh, just Nebraska. You just. I mean, anything more than that? Just state prejudice. 
It's yeah, it's mainly state prejudice and all but the islands. But they waste the, the children, Justin. Do, I know that it, they do do one nice thing. Children. That is cool. They yeah, added I can't that complain later. They, I was a student in 2000 when they denied Northwestern going to the Rose Bowl. I will never forget Iowa for that. So I'm with you, Justin. I agree. Okay. Uh, I guess a few kind of spiritual ones. I, I've thought about writing a blog post defending people who use the word just in their prayers, like every sentence. I think there's something humble about it, but it still grates in the ears when somebody <laughs> prays and inserts the word just before every request, Lord. And they remind God of his title, name, Lord, every sentence, just Lord, Lord, we just want to come before you today. And also inviting God into our presence is another prayer pet peeve, but uh, that's very unsanctified to always be judging people's prayers <laughs> when you hear them pray yeah. the Lord. But that that is one for me. Uh, on Twitter, people asking to retweet or retweeting themselves or quote retweeting themselves. I saw somebody today liked a, a post that they had retweeted, I think, of themselves. So. It's like Inception on Twitter of <laughs> retweeting oneself, retweeting stuff. Uh, I guess an interpersonal one. These aren't as funny or creative or cool as Kevin's, but when somebody wants to t- talk to you, they ask for time to get together, and then they, they talk for 95% of the time, and you're thinking of helpful, insightful, wise responses, and you kind of come to the end of it and you realize – they didn't want to hear anything. They just wanted to speak. Justin's so, now referring to our lunches at Jimmy John's together <laughs> yeah. in Wheaton. I was not going to mention that, but <laughs> sorry, Justin. I or I would add, and maybe this is more unique to the pastoral vocation. You meet and someone want to have lunch, and you do it for an hour and fifteen minutes, and you think, okay, I guess there wasn't. It was just a get together, and and you say, any way I can pray for you, which is the Christian way of saying, I'm almost done. Are you? <laughs> And then they say, well, the reason I wanted to get together, you think, <laughs> oh, we have been doing a lot of preamble. <laughs> now, that Keep guy who had lunch in. with you last week is going to feel really bad. About yeah, that. well, I haven't had lunch with anyone <laughs> yeah, in person say, for a long time. Yeah, nobody, nobody. Virtual lunch. <laughs> no, that's that's the airing of my grievances no, well, for now. But spiritual. Let me, let me add just one. Uh, that is... Complaining on Twitter about people who are not on Twitter or who do not listen to you on Twitter. So I've been kicking this around lately that I think there really has been some kind of revolution affected by social media where all of a sudden our reaction to the news is now the news. And that's really disturbing to me at a variety of different levels. I think it's distorting even to our humanity because it now means we have to project ourselves at all times. But a lot of times on Twitter, I think you do realize nobody's listening. So being mad at somebody else because they're not being mad about that thing that that person did who doesn't care what either one of you thinks or says about anything that's a pet peeve of mine. Okay, so let me add a corollary of somebody doing a nice thing. Happy birthday, grandma, who's 107 today. And like, grandma, grandma's not seeing this or, you know, (laughs) happy birthday to my two month old. 
Why are you saying that? They're all not of, being encouraged by this. They're not like getting warm fuzzies and they don't care the how many likes. they their mom on Mother's Day. <laughs> She's not following. And everyone who says to the best mom, I always want to, you are really hurting. You don't have the best mom. <laughs> who said that? Prove it. Prove That's it a Michael right Scott best, mo- best boss moment right there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Colin? Sorry, I no, should have given you that question ahead of time. No, that's good. I mean, I am always up for some Frank Costanza yelling at Steinbrenner for trading Jay Buhner. I yeah. mean, it is just classic. Well, maybe we can make this a recurring theme on the show. <laughs> um, people who don't put on their turn signal, people slow <laughs> at the left turn lane. Uh, there, there are many. Colin, I remember, I thought you were going to say this with Twitter because okay, you said that? this to me one time. And it, it, it actually stuck with me. You said, uh, don't complain about travel yeah. on Twitter because you look <laughs> when you're, oh boy, the, the airport in Geneva is so busy today. That <laughs> there's, there's no way to complain about your connection in Bali from Jakarta. It yeah. <laughs> doesn't make you come across looking you know, not exactly like the most edifying person. There was kind of a weird season of Twitter life where people were complaining about the TSA. It's just like, why? I mean, the TSA is not following you. No one cares that you've had (laughs) your commute was delayed by seven minutes because they searched your knapsack. (laughs) Did you just say knapsack? He did say knapsack. Wow. Okay. You don't have a knapsack? (laughs) I thought that roughly went out of English usage in 1865. No, well, you need a knapsack for your extra pair of knickers. <laughs> well, I wear a bandana, and that is uh, helpful now. So. Well, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> now we true. actually do need bandanas. I keep looking for my my stock that I can't find. Okay, so I wasn't – this question just came to me, so I don't know if I have a good answer, but I should. What What, what would someone say if they had to take truth serum? Is their pet peeve about you? Oh gosh! No, don't, is, don't don't tell your pet peeve about me. But okay, no. here, I, I I know uh, I had a friend. Uh, I'll say who it is let, uh, off air. Who one time said to me, "Kevin, you're you're compliant but complaining." <laughs> I thought there's some truth to that. Like, yeah, I'll just do it, and I'm making clear that I don't really like it. Just soft, quiet grumbling. Uh, I'm sure many people have left my, my presence and said, that guy is impossible to feed. <laughs> and I'm sure they've gotten not, not because many, of volume many, of food. <laughs> no. Many of, or all? <laughs> all, perhaps. Or especially if I, I speak somewhere and you know my admin assistant who's just doing a wonderful job trying to help me says... He needs this type of cheese only. He needs this brand of Tostitos. He needs berry berry Cheerios. He needs uh, gummy bears. Y- yeah, that sort of thing. He only eats blue M and M's. Yeah, right. No, these are actual actual things because of your diet. These are actual, and I'm sure there are much more consequential things. Uh, it, you guys come up with anything off the top of your head? <laughs> uh, things about you. <laughs> no, that's not off the top of your head. What's in your journal? I had like four things. <laughs> What's the airing of grievances about Colin? 
Hanson. Oh gosh. Well, that's, that's an easy one. <clears throat> Nobody is better than I am about talking at length about things no one else cares about <laughs> and not caring at all. I mean, it's perfect for podcasting, right? Um, or the opposite. No, I, that's, that's my specialty is I just get really enthusiastic about things that no one else cares about. And I don't really care or have the courtesy to stop talking about them to people who don't care. So to all of you who know way more about Northwestern football and the civil war and everything else, um, I'm sorry. And I don't know how to change and I'm getting close to 40. And I figure at that point, that's just not worth bothering. I'm a man. I'm 40. <laughs> so, Do you so have any I'm thoughts afraid. on Shelby foot, Colin? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, there we go. Um, yeah, no, that's that's okay. definitely. I mean, I can think of lots of other ones, but that's got to be number one. There's no one, Colin, that knows more about the Civil War and Northwestern. <laughs> that, is, that is true. That so is that, true. That combo is safe in your hand. You know, you know, somebody somebody has to. All I right, guess. Justin. Anything? Colin is the Cliff Clavin of uh, this podcast. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, I I think I just have a suspicion that there are a large number of verbal ticks that I have that that I'm just unaware of. Probably one is there is a sense in which, and I kind of catch myself like, I, have I said there's a sense in which like seven times in this conversation, and everybody else may be snickering and I'm blissfully unaware of it at the end of the day. Well, I there you that. go. At the end of the day. At the end of the day, and that type deal. Oh, oh! I yeah. should have said. Uh, so I should so have said forth. ending all sentences with of. That would be or prepositions in general. That would be a midwestern tick going that on last week's podcast. And and it's a at usually. Where are you at? Where are you at? Where are you at? It, I mean, it's a it's a semi serious question. You've probably read the C.S. Lewis essay. I reference it all the time in my sermons, The Problem with X. And he talks about you get with a group of people and you talk about the problem with X. The problem with Justin is and everyone, the problem with Kevin and everyone kind of, yeah, yeah. And then he he turns it and he says, you need to realize there's some group of people that you're the X and everyone obviously sees what your problem is. Uh, the proverbial salad dressing on the side of your cheek, the ketchup on on your mouth that you can't see that everyone else can see. And uh doesn't mean that we won't have them, but it's been a helpful uh, check in my own heart before I'm uh, so critical of others, which is can be a besetting sin to realize there's somebody out there saying, and you know what Kevin DeYoung's problem is? And, you know, probably more than half the time they're right. One thing I appreciate about friendship with both of you is that you both regularly invite criticism. Oftentimes it's about something that you've written, but you say, you know, push back and, and tell me what I'm missing here. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. And and I think the three of us know each other well enough, too, that if there's ways in which we are sinning or being unwise in our speech, whether that's tone or content, we kind of have an open door to tell each other, like, man, I, I don't think you got that quite right, or you might want to rethink that. And uh, obviously, even if you invite that, it's still hard to receive it, especially if you disagree with it and feel like you're being um, stubborn by not uh, agreeing instantly with the feedback. But 
I think it's a good thing. Find friends who invite criticism really and good. kind of have an open door for that. I can, I can think of other podcasts that seem more or less dedicated to mocking and pointing out the problems with us three and other and others <laughs> like us. So I think this is an actual specific thing, but I, I hope that's something that comes across in this podcast that we, I, I don't think we claim to have everything figured out or claim to always take ourselves so seriously. I think we do take our beliefs very seriously. And I think we do pl- take God seriously. And I think sometimes those things can be conflated that you, that somehow they all have to kind of fit together. But I think just it's possible to to be very earnest in your belief about God and earnest in your belief about you know, his work in the world and earnest in your belief about what he's doing and, and who he reveals himself to be in his word. But that doesn't have to translate into kind of seeing yourself as an extension of God's authority in exactly that kind of way. So I hope that's something that comes across. And also, I mean, I think I was just reflecting on this. I don't know what you guys have experienced with this, but this is a podcast about books, about reading, and also to a certain extent about writing and publishing them. And one thing I've just found out recently is that I'm much more open to criticism about my writing now than I was 15 years ago. I would, I think I'm probably a much better writer than I was 15 years ago, but now I don't take it as personally and I see it as a way I want to grow. And I think if I've gotten to 40 years old and I'm as good as I'm going to get about books writing, then something's wrong with me. Kevin, I don't know what that's like with your preaching, um, but that's, that's just something I noticed in myself. Like I got, you know, I got a long, my editor wrote me a long thing on Friday about things that I needed to change. And I previously I would have just spent the entire weekend trying to prove him wrong or to fix it. Instead, I was like, okay, I'll get to that. I'm glad that he spent the time telling me where I was wrong. And it is amazing how how difficult it can be to really get, I mean, we all talk about wanting constructive feedback, but either we don't really want it or we don't really get it. And again, not just patting you guys on the back after Justin encouraged us, but I can't think of a time when I've sent you something that I've written where you guys responded and it wasn't helpful. I mean, and 90% of the time I changed the things you suggest to change because I wasn't clear or you brought up a good point and I hadn't thought of. And I do want to get uh, circle back to preaching because I think that's another conversation to talk about because it's very difficult for preachers to get good feedback. I want to give you a chance to add into this conversation, Justin, before I I circle us back to talk a little bit about some of the the social media, Twitter stuff we were just alluding to. Do you want to say anything else about this uh, self-improvement and writing? Uh, I I do think that very few of us are so gifted at thinking and writing that we don't need help. And um, I, I would resonate with what Colin said. I feel like the older I get in so many ways, I feel like there's so much more that I don't know. And uh, my self doubt at some level even rises. I'm just eager for feedback and to see how it communicates with other people. Because when you write something, it's not like it just enters some vault that gets, graded at some cosmic level. The whole point of it is to communicate with people. And so you want to run by something to see what people actually think. Does this make sense? Um, Is it clear? Was it compelling? Did it make you want to keep reading? So it's a way of field testing what you're doing. And uh, I think we 
reject that step kind of at our own peril. There's just, there's no benefit to it. Uh, and the, the key is to find the sort of people that you trust because um, you could send those pieces ahead of time, Kevin, to uh, really strong critics of yours. And that, that might be helpful at a certain level, but it's not going to be the sort of help mm-hmm. that you would expect or somebody who just, you know, send it to your mom and she thinks this is brilliant, Kevin. Thank you so much. You always say it exactly right. And so finding that the right sort of critic and uh, dialogue partners is probably one of the most important things. Yeah. And maybe that's a good segue because it ties into these, both of these conversations we're having. Uh, We were talking, I think it was last week, just about how Marshall McLuhan's famous dictum that the medium is the message that we, we can naively think that we have a message and no matter how it goes out on what sort of medium, it's always the same and, and fail to realize that you know, the medium, if it isn't the message, it certainly shapes the message. And I was just relating what I had heard someone recently observe that print was undeniably tied to Protestantism. We, we know that, but it also was a shaping and shaped by Protestant uh, uh, religion of the word radio tied to the rise of totalitarianism, perhaps television tied to the rise of kind of demagogic presidency or just, you know, president as communicator in chief above all else. And then social media with the rise of populism, but all of us are on social media, blogging, Twitter, maybe you guys are on the other platforms as well. How how do you think that particular medium affects the message and what are uh, possibilities that can be for good and what are some of the pitfalls? And I have a, a, a few theories that maybe we'll get into, but I might start with you, Colin, because you're very observant with these things and even more dialed in than, than the rest of us. How has this changed? I mean, Justin's been blogging for a long time and I've been blogging for over 10 years, but a lot of this social media stuff has changed. How have you seen it changed? And how, how in particular is there a danger that as that's changed, it might be changing us or how we communicate? I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately because during this lockdown, I'm, I'm becoming increasingly sensitive to social media. It's been more discouraging to me um, I, I just sort of, I have this sense of regret or <laughs> like, oh no, this is really going to tear me down. It's going to bring me down when I look at Twitter and I look at Facebook. I think, um, I, I'd be very interested to know what you guys think about this because I, I do think that something changed that now our reaction is the news and there is the expectation of this performative outrage. And what I've been trying to figure out is that it doesn't appear to be any, it's not like one group does this. It's not like only the right does this, or only the left does this, or only Christians do this, or only communists do this. It seems to be endemic to the system itself. There seems to be an inherently reactive nature to this. And so what I've noticed a lot is that with social media, there's an expectation that Somebody must be blamed, and this wrong must be fixed. And that's just the default. Now, and again, it doesn't matter which side you're on. And so everybody somehow senses that 
I'm 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 defending myself and people and things that I love against some kind of conspiracy that's trying to take us down. And I don't know why we think our performative outrage is accomplishing that, but it almost seems I you know I've got an an interview <clears throat> that's out now with Yuval Levine and it seems like we now believe that when you say something you have accomplished something. I think that's new, guys. I mean, I, I know you can go back. My wife and I were talking about this, and she was pointing out that there we, we now do cause marketing, celebrity marketing. But then I went back to the activism of the Vietnam era. So I'm not sure all of that is really new. But this combination of performative outrage, there's always somebody who must be blamed. There's always somebody who must fix this. There's always some conspiracy that I'm trying to out, and my reaction is itself the news. And whenever something bad happens, I am obligated to perform according to the expectations of my tribe. I'm, I'm really worried about mm. this. I'm worried about this for our kids. I'm worried about this for myself. And I'm wondering if this is going to be a long-term takeaway for me with the lockdown, because I do think, I'll just close with this, I think more people have more time on social media now because of the lockdown. And I think I think people are agitated. You know, they're looking for connection. And I thought, you know, so many crises draw out the best in people and they bring out solidarity. I feel like this has been the opposite. I think it's getting worse. And, um, and I've been surprised by some of the controversies that have proceeded as if there's no huge, you know, global pandemic even going on right now. So I don't know what you guys think. And I, and I try not to exaggerate this, but I think this is different. Like growing up, if something happened in the news, would anybody care what you thought about it? What would you do? You send a letter to the editor. Maybe you call into a show. Right. Wouldn't matter. No, that, that's really insightful. What, what do you think, Justin? You follow this stuff a lot. Yeah, I totally agree with what Colin is just saying. I think that is insightful, and I think it's right, and it's worrisome, and it also feels like it's one of those things where it's difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. Like, what do we do other than just to say, I'm going to go cold turkey, and I don't know what people are saying, and I'm not going to participate in it. Um, I mean, I, I think that you guys model social media better than I do and not looking at your mentions as much. And I think Kevin, the way that you do it probably is um, exemplary better than, than what I'm doing, even though I'm, I'm trying just a little bit of a different angle um, from Colin. And this might seem a little bit more benign, but the very nature of Twitter as an example, that you have to compress your thought into, um, you know, now it's 280 characters I remember one time John Piper did a controversial semi, I I can't even remember what the controversy was at the moment, but it was like three tweets, kind of a a little string of three tweets. And Rachel Held Evans, um, the late Rachel Held Evans, tragically passed away, uh, quote retweeted one of his tweets and, you know, did her thing where she made him look bad and kind of called upon others to, to pounce. And I remember Piper saying by email, it was a classic mistake on his part that he always wants every tweet to stand alone. And he kind of made a mistake there and it was an argument. So he was, it was kind of a three-step argument, but somebody can take one step of your argument out of context without 
anybody knowing that there was a second part or something that qualified it, which means that it's almost inherently contrary to careful reasoning and to nuance. Um, If you want to make an argument, arguments take steps. They require clarity on terms. They require uh, proper procedures in terms of logical connections from one premise to reach a conclusion. And it's just very difficult to do that. So unless you're merely tweeting to do fun stuff about uh, whether Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, which he is, or if you're linking to things where you can make a a bigger argument, uh, to try to argue on Twitter uh, is really, really difficult and just seems counterproductive. So nuance is lost, but then it's required that you present things in the most provocative way that get the most attention because we're all creatures of feedback. So if you do a tweet and literally nobody likes it and nobody responds to it, there's only so many times that you're going to do that and until uh, you realize I'm just wasting my uh, finger strength in tweeting this right. out. Uh, what's the point? Now, if I make it a little bit more provocative, if I make it a little less nuanced, all of a sudden, hey, look at this reaction. It's a little bit of Pavlovian dog interaction there that you get that feedback and you realize this is being rewarded if I say it this way and it's not rewarded if I am more careful, if I'm more nuanced. And there's just these expectations. I mean, an 800-word column, say, by David Brooks allows him to set forth an argument, to cite some facts. If you were to do an 800-word string of tweets, people would just say, what is wrong with this guy? This is crazy. What You're just going on and on and right. on. Everything about the medium is just saying, be short, be concise. I only have two seconds. If you don't tell me in two seconds, I'm, I'm moving on. So there's a lot of things that are unhealthy about that whole dynamic. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's really good. And, and one of the things I've been thinking about lately and let, let's just take people of you know think of christians basically of some goodwill uh in online spaces blogging twitter a facebook post i i think some of the inherent difficulty is because online media like that straddles different kinds of communication for example if you're writing a book a book is not immediate. Justin knows that better than anyone. It is a long process through a lot of layers. Now, you may be responding to somebody else's book or ideas out there, but it's far from immediate. And it's not personal. Now, you can make a book personal. You can attack people. You can be responding. But it, it's much more difficult to do. Take that as one a book. On the other end, take a, a conversation sitting down around a table with someone. Unlike a book, it's both immediate and personal. So there are certain things in a book that are expected, generally, a a kind of dispassioned analysis. I mean, you may be passionate about it, but the way you respond, you're not called upon to maybe come alongside and assuage the the feelings of those who you're... Whereas if you're having a conversation and the person across from you seems really upset, well, yeah, that's what you do as a Christian or just as a human being. You say, whoa, what, what, what's going on? Are you okay? Did I say something? That, that's how you relate when you are personal and immediate. And it seems like one of the struggles is Twitter blogging online. We go back and forth. Which one of these are we trying to do? And 
depending on who you are and what you're talking about, you may have a different aim for it. So I, I often, you know, and, and I'm more on the, I, I treat online discussion as I'm putting out information, I'm giving you content if you want to respond. But the nature of people often talk about the conversation. And some people use that as a euphemism, meaning I'm going to say stuff. I, I, I kind of use it that way. Other people are really thinking, I'm in a conversation. You're going to say something. I'm going to say something back. So if you're around the table, it's expected. You say something, I say something. If you have a book, eh, you may, but there's no, or a, or a journal article that's you know has a nine-month delay. But a blog, a tweet, it's sort of unsure. Should you be going back and forth? Should there be a conversation? And then you have a lot of people saying, well, you're, you're, not, you're not listening to me. And I sympathize with that, and I'm frustrated by it at the same time, because I think it straddles that, what sort of medium are we doing here? Uh, are we talking about ideas, and we're, it's more like a book, in which case, I, I'm, I'm not trying to figure out, uh, we're not doing a group counseling session, we're, we're debating publicly ideas, or is it really more of a personal conversation? And, and I think what we often get in online, instead of the best, which is you can be quick, you can be clarifying, you can have many experts weigh in. Sometimes you get that, but you often get the worst. Virtue signaling, tribal, harsh, victimhood. And I think all of these inherent difficulties with the medium are then exacerbated when it comes to conversations that are already fraught with difficulty, whether it's racial or it's gender, where there's already tension, because then it's, I'm quite apart from just disagreeing, or maybe you don't know the person, you're not even sure that you're really talking about the thing in the same way. Um, wait a second, you didn't listen to how, how I'm feeling in this. I, I, I don't dismiss that because if you're at my kitchen table, I very much am wanting to know how you're feeling about it and I don't wanna be rude. But if we're not having that sort of conversation and we're debating ideas, then it can become sort of emotionally manipulative or hijacking. So I, that's someone's probably written about that. I've just been ruminating on that for the past few days. Uh, am I on to anything? Is there any of that makes sense? Yeah. Well, here's here's one thing that can come out in this podcast. So again, we've known each other for a long time. We know each other in person. We know each other, you know, through text and phone calls and all that kind of different stuff. And so, Kevin, I think about just watching your your career, watch you grow up as a friend and all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting to me that you we've talked about this a lot, but when when you tend to write something on your blog that is constructive, that is mainly here's something that I think you should know about, and I'm going to work it through especially a theological talk, a theological topic like your primer, you know as well as I do that it almost never gets any attention. <laughs> it gets no attention. No attention. Okay. So now we also know, let's look at your life. You've got a lot of kids. You, you're, you're leading your home. You're caring for your wife. You are leading a church. You're preaching twice a week. Um, you know, you're doing all kinds of constructive stuff catechetical kind of work. But one thing I've noticed is that you tend to see your blog as the medium to respond to somebody. 
Yeah. And a lot of your responses, whether they be a book review or something like that, have tended to be the things that get the most attention. Okay. For sure. And I think what happens is it actually means then that a lot of people think of you as the person they see on the blog. And I think that's one of the biggest differences that I noticed being a good friend of yours versus seeing the public Kevin DeYoung is that people tend to not see you the way I do because they're only seeing you in that blog medium, which is where it tend tends to be a reactive medium and where you tend to be using it that way, not as a constructive controversy. one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't know if we've talked about this, I think, before, but that's what I think of. Well, and I think it's very hard. We've said this too. I think it's much harder for pastors to be bloggers than it used to be because I think, I don't want to say it has to be a full-time, but really it it is for the people who are ready to get on there with a hot take, ready to be invested. You need to have a lot of time to set aside. And even if a fraction of what I write on my blog are responsive to some current controversy, it's really a fraction, but it's it's like you said, the three-fourths of the fraction nobody really pays attention to. It's just sort of going on teaching didactic sort of stuff, and then the, the responsive stuff gets attention. And, and I, I don't know how well I do this, but I try to do it in a way that's mindful of the different dynamics that I was just talking about, that as much as I want to think of it as a didactic exchange of ideas that not everyone on there is is reading it that way. And so I want to do the caveat and try to try to do the best I can to be heard by those who are asking different questions and are wanting me to speak to some. That's what I did, you know, most recently in one of my blog posts. But that can be difficult to do. And just one last thing I'll let Justin go. You know, I've I've learned the hard way. I mean, I maybe told this story before, but when I first started blogging, this is like my second or third blog post. I did a very snarky post about a Christian author. I thought it was kind of clever, but this is before I even knew anyone was paying attention to anything I was saying. And it was about a week later, I was at speaking at a Christian college at an event. And the person who was affiliated with this other person's ministry so friends of his came up to me at this event, made a beeline, and I thought, uh, what? And he, I mean, he read me the riot act and just said, that that was so snarky. You did this to this person that I care about. You, And I, I was really back on my heels because I was new to this medium. This was 2009. Uh, I just thought, we're just kind of doing fun things. And, you know, I don't know if he was 100% right in his rebuke of me, but he was he was at least more than 50% right. And in and, and the Lord's providence, now I can look back and say, though I'm sure I had to learn the lesson many times after that, it was helpful for me, for me early on, I realized I have to be mindful. What if the person I'm writing about walks in the room tomorrow? What if I see him or her? Now, that shouldn't mean that I'm a coward and I don't, but it, but it is, I think... Mm-hmm shaped how I try to write about things. Would I be embarrassed uh, that this person is going to read this uh, on the other side of their computer and that I would sit down with them tomorrow? And I think that simple act in the Lord's kindness by this person who was uh, rebuking me 
and and we actually had some subsequent conversations that were pretty good uh really helped me to just kind of get my bearings about what i did and didn't want to do justin how do you think of this you have a, a long history in using social media and using it really well We've been grateful. Yeah, for I've it. certainly made uh, my mistakes too, and and try to learn from them, and try not to keep going back to them. But I remember somebody making that observation once about we have to remember that there's real people, and and one snarky critic said, "Come on, you haven't forgotten that that is a real person out there." But but functionally, we can you we do, can yeah. start to treat this person as like a disembodied icon or mascot for some theological tribe, and and not realize. Uh, they have families and they have ministries and they make mistakes and uh, they are real people. I think one of the funny things about a lot of this is that if you have a question about somebody uh, or you want to press back on an article, most of us are relatively accessible. Like if it's a professor, you can find their email online, but we tend to we've already used the word performative. We tend to want to ask those questions out loud so that other people can listen in and see that we're issuing a, a a rebuke or a question. And so going back to your analogy, Kevin, it's, it's not just kind of the, the book or the personal conversation around the lunch table, uh, but it's almost like an auditorium. So there's, you know, going for a public event where there's a debate and you get to ask questions and you want everybody to hear your question. Um, and then to stick with the Twitter thing, it, it's a little bit like watching a debate between William Lane Craig and an atheist. I mean, William Lane Craig does a lot of debates. What if they could only go like one sentence at a time? Like, okay, Dr. Craig, <laughs> opening sentence. And he gives a sentence response from the atheist. Like, it's really the worst possible way to have a conversation. But yeah. somehow we've become a culture to thinking, yeah, this is normal way to go kind of back and forth. And another grievance that I thought of. Uh, good, good. <laughs> when I we're done with the podcast. I thought of another one too, Justin. I go I'm going to have you. a long list when we uh, hang up from the podcast. But <laughs> an, another grievance is to see like some theological topic break out and two or three people go back and forth pretty vigorously. Uh, and then people commenting a couple of days later, uh, a, a big fight or Twitter blew up the other day on this yeah. topic. It's like, I, I was kind of watching that conversation. I think there were like three people that were engaged right. in the conversation, but Twitter, <laughs> theological Twitter blew up on Thursday. Yeah. And the... with that is the, the Jesus juke that often happens <laughs> even on, we could be evangelizing and we're wasting our time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, uh, this is, this is a grievance that I hadn't thought of before as well. Uh, I think one of my, you guys are not guilty of this, not that I'm aware of, thankfully. But one of the ways I've been wounded most as in ministry has been in the cases that you talked about there, Justin, where an issue comes up publicly that could be somebody could ask me about. They can call me, they can knock on my door, they can visit me, they can send me an email, they can stop me at church, and they don't but they decide to go public about it and they're wrong with their facts about it, or they just assume the worst possible interpretation of it. I can think of a number of times where that's happened and consistently that's been one of my, just one of the most painful things mm. that happens in ministry. I'm not sure why it has to be that way, but it does suggest to me 
as we said earlier, the performative outrage dynamic of social media that we all need to be aware of, of um, practicing our righteousness before men, uh, including practicing our righteousness by pointing out the supposed unrighteousness of someone else. And um, I, I mean, I, I've had, thankfully, I've had some really good conversations, even reconciliation, forgiveness extended to friends where that's happened. Um, but, um, and, I, and I, I'm sure I've, I've done the same to others. Um, but that's just, it's one of those, I think we could all grow in how that. You, if just, you have a problem, you have a question, ask somebody. So how do you guys it to social media? think through that? Because we've all seen the, the faux, I think faux outrage of nobody came to me with their, with their, you know, book review, nobody yeah. before sending it to me, Matthew 18. Uh, it, and yet it's, it's not, it's not black or white. I mean, if you guys were going to say something critical about a book or a post, I would expect, and I would be hurt if you didn't say something or if someone in my church did, uh, because there's a relationship there. Uh, but I don't expect, I don't expect people to have to seek me out before. I mean, you make a public comment, you, your, your statements are public and people should be able to respond to them publicly. That's not a Matthew 18, which has to do with confronting somebody in their sin. So how do you guys think through when you would go to someone and when you feel like somebody should have gone to you? Yeah, I I didn't think none of the situations I was thinking about, Kevin, would be kind of those public kinds of things. They tend to be a controversy erupts and individuals are involved and there's some confusion about who's responsible for what or who did what. And if somebody wanted to come, they they know me and they could easily ask me for that clarity. But instead of asking for the clarity, they assume the worst of me or of the institution that I serve and go public with that in ways that actually make the situation worse, which they would find out if they had just asked me or anybody else connected to it. So I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of it connected that way, but I do agree that there is a problem where that kind of thing can be manipulated to say, don't ever criticize me publicly, even when I've said something publicly and that can easily be turned around and manipulated. I write something, you write back about something. And then I say, well, why didn't you talk to me first? Well, you didn't talk to me first. Right, and I don't think you had to. So, I agree. I think it's a little different from what I was yeah, talking about. Yeah, and, you still and then, make a good point. It, well, and I agree with your point. And just conversely, too, just because somebody writes something about you doesn't mean you have to respond. Just because people have exactly. access to us, yeah. even if they find our email, right? Now, again, it depends on how much email you get. And we all know Justin and Crazy Busy. Hmm. Look up the video between Justin and I with Crazy Busy. <laughs> yeah, how many how many emails in your inbox right now, Justin? No, uh, 37,910 oh. oh, unread. I'm like, I have no unread and I have like three emails, <laughs> but there's a cost to that in my, so Justin, how do so you think when crazy you... busy at gmail.com? If you want to email, oh, right. <laughs> but just because someone can get access to us doesn't mean that they, they, they need to get a response from us. But right. yet there are certain people that have a relationship. If someone from my church does, one of my elders do. So that's when people say, you don't listen to X, whatever the X group is. I want to say, no, 
I don't automatically listen to people that I don't know and have no right to put a burden upon my time except that they found out how to get a hold of me. Well, and listen is often code for submit to or agree with, you know, so it's entirely possible that I have listened to X and don't find X's arguments compelling. I disagree with X. So sometimes, you know, kind of that shut up and listen means shut up and agree with me, uh, which is not a great way to have a conversation. I, I find it interesting. The three of us are associated with the gospel coalition in different ways. Um, but to see the number of, kind of conspiracy theories or accusations of motives or connecting of dots of, of course, this is the way it really works, or this is what was motivating this or that. And to be somewhat on the inside and to kind of know what's going on behind the scenes and to see how often that really does miss the mark. So I think a public document uh, invites public scrutiny. Why make it public if, if you're not inviting pushback, uh, feedback, affirmation, denial, whatever. Um, but I think what Colin's alluding to is people connecting the dots. Well, we all know that this must be the case and this, there must be this connection with that person. And therefore this is what's really going on. And so often it's just not true and could have been cleared up if somebody had. So the, the more that it's a public thing, respond to public arguments, the more that you're kind of surmising that I think this trend matches up with this trend. And therefore that must mean that there's this connection, which is the real motivation, despite what they say, here's what, here's what they've publicly stated as their motivation. Let me tell you what's really going on to that degree. I think uh, you need to do your homework and uh, reach out privately before you start kind of connecting those sort of dots. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about DGC fodder and I mean, all of us would, I mean, people could point to us over a decade plus of TGC articles, even from our own writing, probably, and say, yeah. what about that? And I'm perfectly fine to say, yeah, I I didn't agree with that. Or, oh, maybe we missed the mark there. Uh, and that is totally fine and reasonable and fair. What I can say for, so we make mistakes. Sometimes we get things wrong. Sometimes we need course corrections. What's absolutely never been the case I've never been in any smoke-filled rooms. <laughs> uh, there's never once a, a decision that was made, you know, that that I'm aware of with us that was, well, this is going to really hurt our our funding, or this yeah. is motivated by money. There's all sorts of ways that all of us involved in any institution get ego and pride and hurt. I mean, all of that happens in the, in the human spirit, but the, the cabal sort of talk is just, it's an easy way to try to explain what are usually the product of small, complicated, diffuse situations, people, personalities. Okay. End of that books. We've been saving our books too little time. And this is a podcast about books. So here we go. First, uh, we're going to spend a ton of time on this, and I should have given you a heads up on this one, but what are some books that you have intentionally reread? Books that you, not just a resource, you go back to Carson's John Commentary, the ESV Study Bible, but books that over the years, or even looking in a not-too-distant future, you think, I'm going to reread that. I make a point because it is... I learned from it to read it again. I'll give you 
a few that I've done this. Uh, certainly Calvin's Institutes is one that I've read cover to cover a few times, and I'm sure in the future we'll say, I got to read through that again. Uh, Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, because it's such a crisp, clear distillation, really of Bavink, but just of reform theology that I've gone through that. So I, I want to read through that. Uh, Lloyd-Jones Preaching and Preachers is one that every so many years I'll say, even though you don't agree with everything in it, just to spark the, the for me, the, the romance of preaching and to learn from it and kind of be enthused again for the gift that is preaching. Uh, I'll take that off the shelf and read it again. Maybe, you know, I, I've read Chronicles of Narnia a couple times or Lord of the Rings, but as far as nonfiction books, uh, Creed's Confessions, of course, it's sort of a different category, but those three books come to mind. I'll try to think of some others. What about you guys? What do you reread on purpose? Justin? I don't do very much rereading. Um, probably did more of that kind of early seminary days. I struggle more than you guys do to get through books uh, in general. So I think the one that comes most readily to mind that I've probably reread the most number of times and maybe not some cover to cover and some just dipping in would be Augustine's Confessions. Um, I've just never once regretted opening mm. the Confessions. Uh, given the distance that it is, I mean, of, of all the things that we read outside of Scripture, it's one of the oldest that we have kind of in our Christian corpus, mm -hmm. and the way in which it is so incredibly relevant today. Obviously, there's there's cultural, even a little bit of theological distance, but the way in which he's speaking into the human heart, uh, the way he's really conducting the the longest sustained prayer in, I think, ancient uh church history literature. Uh, I just find it an utterly remarkable book. And and it's not that long, relative, you know, compared to something like Calvin's Institutes. It's uh, comparatively short, but the richness that it repays from rereading. Uh, we have lots of different translations too, so that makes it a different experience each time you go back to it. Uh, but I have Gary Will's uh, relatively literal translation from the Latin, uh, which he also did kind of commentaries along with it, explaining his translation choices. Uh, it's not as poetic as some of the other ones like like Chadwick's, but um, I've I've never once regretted reopening Augustine's Confessions. That's really good, Colin. What do you reread? Shelby Foot. Yeah, I don't I don't do much of it. Um, so you guys keep referencing Shelby Foot probably because it's on the video that we're watching here. It's on my top shelf. Up well, there, and, or and else you're, you're, you're the you president of the Shelby Society. Foot Society. I did. I am. It's, it's officially on my Wikipedia page. The founder of the Shelby Foot Society. So I'll get to that in a second. President, I, vice president, and secretary. Yeah, that's true. That is also true. Um, I will, I will, I will say that all of the books that I have a hunch that Kevin's going to ask us about ministry books. So all mm -hmm. of these would qualify. All of the ones that I'm going to share would also qual would qualify as rereads for me. But um, the books that I tend to enjoy the most and really just really get into but miss the most at the same time are long historical texts, either novels or um, or nonfiction. So it would be Shelby Foot because it's so long and there's so many names and there's so many details 
that a lot of those names and details get lost and you miss the significance of them. So you add, as you add to your body of knowledge of that event, you can go back and all of a sudden these things that you had missed, these clues that you had missed are all of a sudden there for you this whole time. So you can reread that every five or 10 years. And if you're growing in your proficiency in that subject matter, it really rewards the rereading. And he uh, the other one, one I was, we keep mentioning him. What was oh, his? Shelby foot, the, um, the epic trilogy, the civil war. Yeah. Uh, so he, um, became famous in the nineties and, and sold, uh, more than a million copies of these long three volumes about the civil war. But the, um, you know, there's a lot of complaining about Christian writing and kind of in in keeping with this conversation we're having today, I don't want to just heap a bunch of criticism there. But one of the reasons I enjoy reading him is because he approaches his st- history from the perspective of a novelist. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that a novelist does is that he takes us inside the characters, and we see through their eyes what's happening, and there's a sense of drama and contingency, whereas history is plagued, in my view, by the omniscient narrator who always knows how everything is going to turn out. And I think it sucks it dry of the drama and of the sort of human morality play that's um, that's, that's, that's kind of working itself out in there. So, so again, Shelby Foote does that because he's a novelist who then turned to history. The other is, is very similar. Uh, it's, I had mentioned watching this recently and Kevin rightly called me out on text about it. But uh, if you look at Vasily Grossman's Stalingrad and life and fate, it's, 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 um, again, as I've talked about it before, it's taking war and peace, but it's applying it to the great patriotic war, which is what the Russians call world war two. And, um, it's just like those Russian novels where the, the cast of characters is overwhelming. And so you just, you know them by the end, but like you've invested 400 pages and you don't even quite know who everybody is by that point. So those are ones that I look forward to rereading someday. I only read them last summer. So I look forward to rereading them because now I'll be able to go back and say, oh, now I see what's happening here. Um, and that'll be really fun because as I've said before on this podcast, I love reading these long novels, but it literally can take me 100, 200, 300 pages before I even really understand, before I enter into that world. So, so I don't do a lot of rereading, but that's what I would save it for. I just read the Wikipedia pages for books, and that seems to help. <laughs> yeah. And I don't need to read it. I see if there's a movie. Brothers Karamazov was a quick breeze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, luckily for you, Kevin, as I shared last week, there is now a mini series of Life and Fate. So you can sit down and enjoy it. Ah, and it's, you know and how it's I am dubbed. with movies. <laughs> but we'll try. Okay, okay. Uh, this isn't a podcast for pastors and lots of people who aren't pastors, but I imagine that that's uh, probably a, a core audience of our myriad upon myriad of listeners far and wide. Does myriad so, mean 10? And I, th- I thought it just meant a bunch. Okay, all right. A bunch and a bunch and a bunch. A bunch okay. and a bunch. Uh, what are some of your favorite pastoral ministry books? Are bo- both of you elders at your local church? Justin, are you or you well, were? I'm not right now. Okay, I was, but, but, but you, you not right now. You're an elder. So uh, not pastors in 
the same way that most people use the word pastor, but very much invested in ministry, concerned about the health of the church and pastoral ministry. What are some of your favorites that you've read or that you recommend to others? Justin, you got a list for us? Yeah. Um, in terms of preaching, John Stott's Between Two Worlds, I th- which is how wow, I got the great, name of my blog. <laughs> Somebody name should name a blog after it. account. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I looked over on my shelf. So I was like, "That'll work." And uh, <laughs> that's ca- yeah, catchy um, written all over it. <laughs> and what are the two worlds? Um, Iowa and Nebraska. Okay, because it's not <laughs> heaven and earth. Kind of it's not between those two worlds, <laughs> right. which is just called Sioux City between yeah. Iowa and Nebraska. <laughs> right. Sioux City, right in the Missouri. Uh, no, it's it's. On the preaching task of connecting the the biblical world and the contemporary world and kind of spanning those two and communicating from one to the other. Uh, when I was at Bethlehem uh, doing the apprenticeship program, I think Piper assigned Lloyd-Jones Preaching and Preachers, uh, Stotts Between Two Worlds, and Supremacy of God and Preaching by Piper himself. And I think those three have, have really shaped a lot of my conception of uh, preaching. Y- your question was on pastoral ministry, yeah, which is one. a little bit broader. Right. Um I think a lot of the little books in the Nine Mark series have been particularly helpful when I was an elder, just uh, for us thinking through practical issues about church membership or about elders. Um, and an, another Nine Marks book, which is currently being revised and it's going to come out in a second edition, um, I'm not 100% sure if it'll have the same name, but The Deliberate Church by Mark mm-hmm. Dever and Paul Alexander, I think it has not gotten the, quite the same attention as some of the other books in the Nine Mark series, but I thought it was really, really practical and helpful. It's not necessarily your inspiring, uh, I mean, it's inspiring at a certain level, but just the nuts and bolts of practical pastoral ministry. Um, deliberate is not the most catchy uh, adjective to describe a church, but it it really is indicative of their intentionality and deliberate nature of of thinking through an entire church service kind of from the ground up. And uh, it really impacted me and appreciated it a great deal. Um, another one that I just keep hearing about is a Crossway book, uh, Zach S. Wine's The Imperfect Pastor, um, just encouraging pastors uh, to echo the John the Baptist, that I am not the Christ. That's yeah, formerly um, titled Sensing Jesus, or no? Sensing Jesus was the original, bigger edition of it. Oh, okay. Life uh, and ministry ac- as a human being. I don't think anybody read it, but those a few of us who did, it was amazing. Yeah, so then he revised it and shortened it as the imperfect pastor. And one of the key overarching principles is just what John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. Uh, there is one who knows everything and is all-powerful and can be omnipresent. And I'm not him as a pastor, as an elder. Um, I need to point you to him. I can't be him. I can't be everywhere. I don't know everything. I can't fix everything. But that's why we have a Savior. So I I can't functionally take on the, the Christ role. I'm an imperfect person. Um, I'm a sinner who needs guidance and uh, need to look to the great shepherd. So those are a few that I think have influenced me and the way I think about pastoral ministry. Good. I got a good long list. But Colin, what do you have? Pastoral ministry to, slash preaching books. I'll try to be quick. How blessed are we by an absolute amazing abundance? 
of resources. And I'm just going to keep talking up Crossway as much as I can until they become our sponsors. So, Justin, that's your responsibility mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. here uh, to figure out. No, I mean, when when I started thinking about this, you know, I thought I could I could give a lot of a lot of answers to this and. I can think of other works from Jonathan Edwards that I strongly recommend to people. I can think of even some social psychology that's been really helpful to me that's gotten me through some some difficult times uh, ministry-wise uh, from one of my favorite authors, Jonathan Haidt. But I thought I'd be a little bit more straightforward here because I can in good confidence recommend these books to anybody. Uh, and in fact, I would, I, I just, yeah, I can't think of anybody I wouldn't recommend them to. So, First one from my old pastor, Liberating oh, Ministry from the Success Syndrome uh, by Kent and Barbara Hughes. Um, my years spent as, an, as, a, as a member and then as an intern at College Church in Wheaton, uh, which is interestingly where we were assigned the Deliberate Church for the internship class. Um, this book was just, um, it really explains, it's, it's, for those of us who weren't really around all the way through the 70s and the 80s into the 90s, it might not land quite the same way, but I hope it does because Kent and Barbara's story is remarkable and it really helps set you on the right path of ministry. Um, I also did have Zach S. Wine Sensing Jesus, and if you can find one of those contraband copies, one of those uh, out-of-print copies of Sensing Jesus, or of course use the smaller version there, but um, you know, there's. I'm convinced, and we should talk about this another time, Kevin and I have batted this around, but I'm, I sense that there's something rotten at the core of how we understand calling to ministry. And this book will help set, um, set young ministers, I think, especially straight on that path. The next one, again, we're three for three here with Crossway, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, mm. The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson by D.A. Carson. And of course, I've had the privilege of working for Dr. Carson and studying uh, under him. And of all the books of his, many, many, many books, the one that's most consistently referenced, I think, by young people in ministry is this one about his dad. It's the one that comes up, you know, like it's not going to win, didn't win all those book awards like The Gagging of God, but I bet more people are reading this one. I I assign it for my pastoral ministry class, and I'll get to some of the other books I assign. But And I've told this to Don a bunch of times because invariably— and they, they have to write a reflection paper. Invariably, they, they write things like, this is the yeah. best book I've read in seminary, or yeah. I'm making my wife read this book with me, or this is so much what I want to be, or I am reading this book with tears. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's one of undoubtedly their, their favorites in their whole seminary experience. Yeah, so last one that I'll mention... Center Church by Tim Keller. Um, you know, the book's been out for about 10 years. And I think with Tim's volume of publishing, that it's easy, even though he sold lots of copies of these books and they've been well-reviewed, that people take it for granted. But I'm telling you, you don't have to agree with every single thing you read about in this book. But the amount of learning, experience, study, that is evident in this book is remarkable. And as somebody who looks up to Tim so much, and I just, I, I sit there thinking, there's no way to microwave the kind of 
just analysis and understanding and perceptiveness that comes through in this. Um, and I think that's a lot of Tim's gifting, especially. And, you know, I just, of all the different things I could reference, um, it's just why go past the basics. Like if you haven't read Center Church, I hope that you'll read it. It's not only one of my favorite books, but it's also one of the favorite books of my two-year-old daughter who loves to call it Center Church, which I think that works too. That works well, too. You take Deliberate <laughs> Church and Center Church. Yes. And, and they're very, they're be quite different in some of the things they're advocating for sure. and their sensibilities, but they're both the sort of books by seasoned pastors who thought and ha- continue to think a lot about how to do ministry. And there's something very instructive in that. And I've read both of those books and love both of those brothers. And there are things in both of those books that I disagree with, but there's a lot that I learn. And I learn because they have really thought about how to do church from building on their principles and really doing something to model what they think is the most effective and scriptural way to do church. I don't like that phrase, do church. You know what I mean? Here's some of my books. I teach pastoral ministry class at RTS Charlotte. And so I always have to go, I have 12 or 15 books I want to assign and I have to sign three of them, but Spurgeon lectures to my students, just great. Uh, Richard Baxter, reformed pastor. You, you, you have to understand the context and you can read that and think if I don't visit 17 families a day, I'm not a real pastor, but the, his care for the sheep is really instructed, uh, instructive. Read that with Timothy Whitmer's book on um, shepherding, elder shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. What's the title of it? A shepherd leader, is it? Something yes. Like that? Yeah. Really, That's really practical on how to think about how you would shepherd your church. Um, Piper's book. I mean, one of my favorite Piper books, probably my top three is Brothers Were Not Professionals. And a lot of it, isn't it true? It's it so much has to do with when we read the books, where are we? It's the book yeah, that met us. So. I mean, I read it my first year in pastoral ministry. Another one, a crossway one, I talked to Justin about this, that I don't think gets enough attention is uh, Jesus Driven Ministry by Ajith Fernando. There's a lot of wisdom in there and from a non-Western perspective, but someone who's very familiar with the West uh, was helpful. Another one in my class that's outside of our circles. I don't know if you guys have ever read David Hansen. Uh, he's sort of a Eugene Peterson inspired, you know, had a couple small churches in Montana. Then he was in Cincinnati. I've lost track, so I, I, I don't know where the brother is or what his trajectory has been. But when he wrote these books, I think I was introduced to him because he was a Gordon Conwell graduate at one point. But when he wrote these books in the probably the 90s, early 2000s, uh, there's one, The Art of Pastoring. He has a book on prayer. They were very good. I thought they they took the kind of inspirational, slow down sort of Eugene Peterson ethos, but had some better theological guardrails. Charlie Wingard has a really good book, Practical for Pastors. Jason Halopoulos has one for new pastors. Uh, David Wells, I think is really helpful to just get a kind of a sociological, theological, cultural grid for what's happening in the world. Gregory the Great, the book of pastoral rule preaching. You mentioned all the ones I would have mentioned, Lloyd Jones, Piper, Stott, David Helm, that, that one, that in the nine mark series on expositional preaching. Uh, if you don't know how to start, what do I do? 
what does it look like in a very short practical book? David Helm is good. And the, the book by Gary Miller and uh, who's the co-author, Matthias Media, Saving Eutychus. Mm-hmm. Um, Gary's a great Irish brother doing really good work in Australia. Now, they really Gary are... Gary Millar. Millar? Millar, I think. I that's how it's spelled. Miller. That's how it's, yeah. But I don't think it's how it's pronounced. Yeah. This is riveting podcast talk, This is riveting way, podcast. Anyways, uh, uh, yes. other than um, really advocating, I think, for 23-minute sermons on the dot or whatever the... Really? Uh, yeah. So I didn't... Sounds but, Anglican. Well, and Gary's Presbyterian, so I don't know. <laughs> I that. know. Yeah. But so there's lots of really helpful things out there. Here's what, as we bring this at the 75 minute mark, and I wanted to get more of this, but we'll do it quickly. So I, I preach every week, almost every week. You guys have probably done some preaching. I know you have, but rather than hear me talk about preaching, I would love as a preacher to hear from you guys, not regularly preachers. What, what, and what might be surprising for us pastors? What are you looking for in good preaching? What preaching strikes you as good? And, and what are some things that make bad preaching when you're listening to it? And uh, if you want to pull in contemporary examples for the good, we don't need to call out people on the bad, but feel free to do so. But I'm just curious as your friend, you know, it's really, really hard for pastors to get honest feedback. We talked about that earlier in the podcast, you know, three days ago. Uh, to get honest feedback on preaching. Either it's just lots of handshakes at the door. Oh, thank you, Pastor. It's exactly what I need to hear. You know, or just critical people. But to really know what's working, what's not. You guys sit in the pews, chairs. How do you assess preaching? And what would you want pastors to hear? Keep doing more of this. Do less of that. Justin? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh one thing that I notice in far too many sermons is that it's all indicative and it never gets around to the imperative. So you're giving a lot of really good information and we know that uh, the imperatives are built upon indicatives, but you know, I've sat through entire sermons to think you, you've never called us to do anything. It may be about repentance and you've never exhorted the congregation to repent, um, to submit, to to do X, Y, or Z. So that would be one thing is just don't make it so indicative oriented that you never get around to actually calling people to do something that the word's calling them to do. Uh, a second one would be, can I listen to the sermon without ever having to refer to my Bible? Um, I think it can be filled with lots of theology and lots of good spiritual encouragement, but when I'm hearing a sermon, I want to have to have my Bible open to be following along to, to see if these things are so to be checking them, to see it for myself. And I think the best preaching illumines the text and draws you into the text rather than just, it's different than a theological lecture. A theological lecture can be great, but it doesn't, you know, you don't have to have your nose in the text in order to benefit from it. And then the final thing just off the top of my head that comes to mind is to have the sort of structure in mind that when somebody's done the, the car ride home and you say to the kids, what, what was the sermon about or what did you get out of it? If it was just a lot of good information, but it, there wasn't a clear structure and um, you know, you don't repeat the points or um, I just think we, we all need help as listeners. 
what's the main point? Where are we going? What did we just cover? Um, and and maybe drop out kind of long quotes from other people. Mm-hmm. If you know you're a pastor and your preparation, you read this just killer quote from uh, some great author, C.S. Lewis. Rare- it's always C.S. Lewis or Spurgeon. <laughs> So. And and I I'm tempted to do that too. You come across something that's great, and you think this would work perfectly here, but unless it's two or three lines, you know, if it gets to be two paragraphs, it's just you're asking a lot of of the audience to to track with that and to comprehend it. I think that's really good. Yeah, very true. Because you you're doing your study and you're really moved by this, and uh, it's just it's the sort of thing that maybe works on the printed page, but it's very hard to get people to track with you. I, I, I can be a, an offender of that. Great Calvin quotes. You're going to want to hear this in its entirety. Unabridged. Colin, what do you what do you think? How do you assess preaching good and bad? I've been so blessed over the years with a lot of really wonderful preachers. And so, um, yeah, I just consider myself, um, uh, just God's been very kind to me and my wife uh, when it comes to that. And with, with, yeah, very few exceptions. And so I think I would agree with Justin about there. I really am looking for somebody who, who opens up the Bible and helps me to love God's Word. And ultimately, of course, God Himself uh, there. That's it's pretty, pretty simple there, and yet you can still kind of lose sight of that. I think it's always tempting for pastors uh, to want to use the Bible as, a, as an excuse to launch into whatever they feel like they want to talk about. Whatever's on their mind, I think it's a lot easier to prepare that way. You know, you you do that, you add in a few anecdotes about kids and kind of call it good. Um, but I think um, one thing that I learned in seminary studying preaching that has really stuck with me over the years is that preaching is a unique thing. It's it's different from teaching in so many different ways, kind of like in part because of the exhortation that Justin was talking about, but also because there's some kind of dynamic interaction between the the word of the Lord and the word of the communicator of the preacher himself. And I think um, what tends to really help people to change and to grow in sanctification over time is when they, they see and behold the example and the character of the preacher, the relationship with the preacher. And as they see that over time and as the cumulative effect of the messages begins to build, it helps to raise the plausibility of this life of godliness. And it all kind of works in a mysterious way that you might not be able to remember individual messages, but you remember the effect and you're kind of changed there. So I guess I would just want pastors to remember that so much of, of their life and their pastoring helps to set up their preaching. Um, and so I, it just depends on which pastor needs to be exhorted to maybe spend a little less time in the study and who needs to spend a little bit more time in the study, but it's just going to be that dynamic interaction uh, that really helps there. And so, yeah, I mean, one thing I've noticed uh, during this, I've noticed during this lockdown that my pastor's preaching doesn't come across the same way. And I was wondering why, uh, and I realize because he's not surrounded by hundreds of people who've known him for decades and love him and react to him when he says things. Mm-hmm. So you can see him up there struggling. He'll say something and there's no reaction and he doesn't know what to do because 
that's not, he hasn't had experience in, in 20 plus years of ministry of doing it like that. And I think it's because we don't just know him as this person who teaches the Bible. We know him as somebody, we've been in his home, he's been in our home, we, we've been through so many difficult things together, we've worked together, all this kind of stuff, and it all fits together under this banner of what we call preaching. And even right. in that case, preaching that's not, quote-unquote, the best, according to the textbook, can still be exactly what the Holy Spirit intends for you through the medium of the preacher. Yeah, I've certainly experienced that. Uh, I'm very thankful for the live stream capabilities, but during this stay-at-home time, I've said many times, I wouldn't have gone into ministry to do a weekly TV program. And uh, people will say, it seems very natural. You're looking around the congregation like people are there, and, and I'm glad for that. But it's certainly a different experience. And this is, uh, you know, I, I really thought long and hard about multi-site at one point, and there's maybe different opinions from our listeners out there across the Fruited Plain. But what really decided me against it was, it didn't at least multi-site with a video, is uh, the preaching event. And there's there's a preaching moment that the you even if you're not in a congregation where people are uh, audibly saying "Amen, go get him, preacher." You can tell people are really coughing. It's antsy, or it's really quiet. There's a hush here. Uh, they're with me. They're sad. They're quiet. I mean, you don't throw in jokes to get a response, but but that's part of communicating them with you. And there's a certain sense of rapport. So you don't have any of that when you are preaching just to a live stream and whoever is is watching. And I'll just wrap it up by saying any any preachers out there, anyone who aspires to that, what I agree with Colin, Justin, your thoughts here. If, if uh, this is one of my hobby horses, or I, I hope it's better than a hobby horse, we need to pay attention to the meaning and the mood of the text. So not only that we're exegeting the passage correctly, but that we're attending to the mood. And I think that helps with the imperative versus indicative. Is this passage supposed to feel glorious? Is it supposed to feel like I'm getting a kick in the pants? Is it supposed to feel scary? And they don't all feel the same. And if we don't pay attention to the mood, we just will import to it our own mood for that week, or more likely just our own personality. Are we the sort of person who, you know, we liked the coach who berated us and made us go run 10 laps and we responded well to that, or we like the one who always gave an arm around us because we're always feeling down on ourselves. And the Bible has all of that, but we need to pay attention to the meaning and the mood. And people ought to leave feeling like uh, they've learned something, even a very familiar passage, even a very well-taught congregation. I'm not looking for, you know, uh, scholarly depth necessarily, but a connection, something, because hopefully you're seeing something that you didn't see before. And this is where both of you talked about attention to the text. I want the best preaching to be tied to the closest attention to the text. And so if the best stuff I have for this week is already just stuff I was thinking about, and it's not from a new insight that I learned in the text or a connection I saw with this and the rest of God's word, then I think that's the, the the preaching begins to fall flat over time. Uh, brothers, thank you. We have tested the patience of our listeners once again to the tune of two or three sermons or one 
robust Puritan sermon. But appreciate you, brothers, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be back in a week's time, and we'll talk more about life and books and cactus bread and everything.